This is Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. We bring you the latest and best strategies, tactics, and information to help employers boost their bottom lines by investing in healthy and engaged workforces that deliver real ROI. Welcome to today's program. I'm Stephen Van Yoder. And I'm Jim Purcell, and we're the co-founders of the Returns on Wellbeing Institute. Welcome to today's podcast. Many studies have tried to link employer wellness programs with financial returns. And despite attempts to prove that wellness programs can pay for themselves via positive business outcomes, there's still disagreement and even fierce debate about whether employee wellness can yield ROI. Today we're talking with Ray Fabius, the co-author of Companies That Promote a Culture of Health, Safety, and Well-Being Outperform in the Marketplace. This is a recent study published in the Journal of Occupational Medicine. Ray will discuss his stu- what his study means for employers as we explore his views on the potential for seeing employee well-being as an investment in business success. Ray, thank you for being here with us today. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, uh, Steve and, and Jim. Um, so let's start. Tell us uh, a bit about your professional background and what led you to perform this study. I started, remarkably, as a frontline pediatrician. And um, after a decade of uh, work in that space, I built the largest uh, primary uh, pediatric practice in the Philadelphia area. Uh, We grew to eight doctors and 16,000 children. In the process of doing that, I started to realize the importance of looking at my practice as if it were a whole population, not just looking at it as one patient at a time. Mm -hmm. And um, also engaged in a a, a good bit of management. Uh, At that time, uh, because our uh, pediatric practice was highly sought after by uh, the emerging health plans and managed care companies, I started to serve as an advisor and then as a part-time and then ultimately as a full-time medical director, uh, transitioning from pediatrics to um, medical management. And I spent the next decade with uh, Cigna, uh, US Healthcare and Aetna and had an opportunity to be a corporate medical director um, across, uh, I'll say a full domain of Uh, business segments uh, from things like quality management, utilization management, and uh, national accounts. I then threw out a a series of flyers because I really wanted to be a chief medical officer. And to my own astonishment, I was hired as the global medical leader for General Electric. And it was there that I really became uh, fully, uh, um, I'll say, cognizant of uh, the remarkable role that an employer can play in uh, impacting an individual's health and well-being. The opportunity to be most impactful in uh, this pursuit is to get the attention of the C-suite, and perhaps, maybe this is also somewhat audacious, but to get the attention of the investment community. I thought that it's possible that these companies that distinguish themselves in uh, in the pursuit of a culture of health, safety, and well-being might actually outperform in the stock market. And it took a a while for me to even develop the methodology that uh, is now an acceptable methodology. In 2013, I took uh, the first shot at trying to demonstrate that a collection of companies that uh, were identified as uh, benchmark companies 
would demonstrate that they're that 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 they would outperform in the stock market. And that 2013 article was the first ever uh, article to show that a this methodology that we developed of a virtual portfolio was sound, and b that companies that won the Corporate Health Achievement Award sponsored by the American College of Occupational Environmental Medicine outperformed in the stock market. The most recent study, the, the one that was published in June this year, focuses on returns on investments or financial performances in select companies within the Health Advantage Appreciation Fund. What exactly is the Health Advantage Appreciation Fund and why was it selected for your study? This particular study is that it's the first study that I've ever done uh, that is not virtual or hypothetical. Mm -hmm. uh, this is an actual study of companies that were selected uh, based on uh, public domain information and proprietary criteria that was established with uh, the proprietary knowledge that uh, has been garnered from my company, HealthNext. It's the first study that's ever been done that tracked a real fund, uh, albeit we'll, we'll call it a pilot, but a real fund's performance uh, against uh, uh, the standard indices of the stock market. You distinguish between a virtual and a real fund. Uh, what is the value of doing it with a real fund as opposed to virtual? Of course, a virtual fund uh, takes no risk. I mean, it just tracks stocks and you pretend that you invested in something and you track it historically over time. In some ways, uh, this study is not that different than what happens um, in, in other forms of medical science. Uh, I see that same progression here, which is that, you know, first I published a bunch of studies that said, um, uh, this looks to be true virtually. And then I thought it would be very important as part of my research to actually put my own money where my mouth was and, um, and show that a real investment portfolio could do the same thing. Now, what were the criteria that you used to select the companies uh, that the fund would invest in? We, we found early on in our research at HealthNext that uh, benchmark cultures of health and well-being companies uh, pretty much all had, and this may sell, sound self-ingratiating, but they, they, they almost all had a chief medical officer. Mm -hmm. And so um, one of the criteria we used was whether or not there was somebody in the company who woke up every day committed to the health and well-being of the workforce. And it doesn't really have to be a chief medical officer. There are some companies that have a chief health officer, and it doesn't necessarily have to be an MD or a DO. Um, it could be somebody who's experienced in, in public health um, or population health. Uh, but uh, that's a very important early and significant criteria. We also mm -hmm. found that companies that made significant investments, like they uh, invested in a workplace health center, uh, would be a good proxy of a company that was really committed to this. So we looked uh, where we could in the public domain for evidence of companies that actually had workplace health centers. Um, in addition, uh, you know, because like you, uh, I'm on the circuit, uh, you know, going to conferences that are committed to health and well-being, 
uh, you wind up seeing certain companies that present over and over again, uh, indicative of the fact that they're not only interested in building a culture of health, safety, and well-being, but they're also leaders in the space. And then, as uh, as, as I mentioned in the 2013 article, an easy way to try to identify companies are the ones that have won awards. Mm -hmm. And so there are awards like the Corporate Health Achievement Award. There are awards uh, that um, are sponsored by uh, the, the COOP Health Project. Um, there are awards uh, that are given through the National Business Group on Health. Uh, there's even self-assessment uh, tools uh, that have been uh, historically uh, utilized by uh, HERO, uh, the Health uh, Research Enhancement uh, Organization, and uh, occasionally they give out uh, some awards in recognition to companies that are doing uh, great work. What are the results of the study you've just published, and how, do the, how does that compare? Is it different? Is it a continuation? Does it build on previous findings? Uh, it's, a, it's a continuation and it builds on previous findings. Uh, again, I mean, what distinguishes this particular study is it was done with real money over time. Uh, but uh, like the others, it demonstrated that companies who uh, distinguish themselves by having uh, best practice cultures of health, safety, and well being uh, outperform in the stock market. So as we uh, do different studies and different research, both virtual and actual, um, and have them published, it, 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 it tightens uh, the correlation between uh, best practice uh, cultures of health and well-being companies and uh, what appears to be a competitive advantage in the marketplace. This particular study uh, showed a 20% higher uh, market capitalization um, uh, appreciation uh, than uh, the standard indices over uh, that 10-year period. You included a disclaimer that essentially says any linkage you describe between companies with robust cultures of health and better stock market performance does not necessarily imply causation. I explain what you mean by that, Ray. Probably the case that companies who have uh, been able to achieve a benchmark culture of health, safety, and well-being are companies that are really good at executing on lots of things. In my approach to identifying companies that are uh, uh, distinguishing themselves in the space that we're studying together and promoting together, uh, I've actually uh, identified great companies that are great at doing a lot of things, not just uh, their culture of health and well-being. Uh, it's one of the reasons why it makes sense to um, be a, a bit cautious in making the statement that um, uh, this effort is, you know, entirely or largely uh, responsible for the uh, competitive advantage that we've been able to identify in the marketplace common critique of many ROI studies centers on this causality issue of whether studies can link well-being actions to positive financial outcomes. And, and yet now you're sitting on upwards of five studies that each seem to do this. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, for starters, uh, you know, I'm committed to continuing to publish studies 
that uh, bolster this connection. And of course, as you uh, publish different studies that all uh, uh, restate the strength of this correlation, uh, you um, are building a case that maybe it's more than just correlation, it could be uh, actually causative. There was an elegant study but done by uh, uh, our colleague, uh, Dr. Bruce Sherman, uh, when he was at Goodyear, uh, where he looked at uh, the healthcare costs and the degree of waste uh, that uh, occurred at Goodyear tire locations. And mm -hmm. there was a direct correlation between uh, the, the, the factory sites that were spending the most on healthcare uh, and having the most waste and the ones that were spending the least on healthcare and having the least waste. So we, he was using uh, healthcare costs as a proxy for the uh, the health and well-being of that particular workforce. So he, he created a direct correlation between the health and well-being of the workforce and the degree of tires that had to be, um, you know, uh, uh, redone. Uh, there was a study done by the chief medical officer at the time of Target, where he showed that uh, in their locations where their workforces were healthier, they had 6% higher sales. Many years ago, called the Lamplighter Study, done in concert with a university, mm -hmm. which showed that the high-performing employers had higher scores in terms of their own health and well-being. The higher performance in a company is correlated to the greater health of the individuals and the organization as a whole. So there, there is, there's so much uh, wealth of data now to strengthen the concept that this is more than a correlation. Looking at several studies like uh, RAND, PepsiCo, BJ's, University of Illinois, uh, that basically concluded little to no positive ROI from different well-being programs they analyzed. What is your feeling on those studies, where they were coming from, and what's your position on these studies connected to your findings? Uh, our research clearly demonstrates that doing an individual program on some small facet of what we would all consider a holistic approach to health and well-being in the absence of a cultural transformation inside of an organization that absolutely um, uh, fosters the notion that to be part of this company, you need to take care of yourself and your family members and your colleagues. Um, it's unlikely that any program's going to really uh, cause a significant sustainable impact. Some of those studies that were done uh, were, um, you know, I would say uh, pretty uh, immature. I mean, for example, uh, one of the studies uh, just looked at implementing an isolated wellness program at a few locations inside mm -hmm. a much large, larger company. They're, they're telling their workforce that we're experimenting with a few people so that we don't necessarily even believe in doing this across our locations, even though it's just a single wellness effort. So um, I'll say immature in your thinking that a, a, an individual wellness program studied for its impact in terms of an ROI would actually generate something of significance, um, you know, is, is the antithesis of where, you know, at least we all stand on what a company really needs to do. In general, you think some of the analysis and resulting critiques have been 
too narrow in uh, what they analyzed and too narrow in scope. And that could be timeline and, and uh, a comprehensive look at a company, uh, all, all, all moving parts. The, the research that we have um, uh, conducted at uh, Health Next, where we studied the benchmark culture of health companies, identified 218 action items that a large employer can do and 50 action items that a mid-market employer can do across 10 pillars. Our research has shown that in order for you to build a sustainable benchmark culture of health and well-being, uh, you have to do about two-thirds of them and you have to do them in the right order. And so those of us who are uh, enlightened in this space understand, for example, that it's unlikely that you're going to get something of significant traction unless you uh, first uh, establish uh, firm leadership support and management alignment, that this is something that the company is going to consider a priority. And secondly, the organization has to establish a comprehensive strategic multi-year plan. I want you to know, as our research shows, that one thing won't work, uh, even a half a dozen things won't work, and they will particularly not work if they're not done in the right sequence. Much of the, much of the research that shows things that don't work are either being done uh, in isolation uh, when you need a critical mass of efforts or they're being done out of order. I, I read a 2015 Health Affairs article where you agree with Ron Getzel, a, a buddy of mine and a buddy of yours, uh, about, and I, I quote, moving away from a preoccupation with ROI of wellness programs and toward the more systemic iterative view required to make progress toward workplace cultures of health. Um, let's just start by, what do you mean by that? Uh, you know, I think what Ron and I are talking about in part is that the, the notion of limiting uh, the impact of a particular wellness program on uh, uh, costs related to uh, healthcare or pharmacy is, is far too restricting in terms of the magnitude of the impact that a healthy workforce can have on um, on, on the performance of the organization. And so uh, when you do an analysis of what a turnover is in a company, it's remarkably costly. And if you can reduce the turnover of uh, staff uh, by even one, two, five percent, that ought to be incorporated in what you may want to call, you know, as Ron and I talk more about the value on investment, you know, sort of beyond the return on investment. Not to, not to, not to even mention uh, that um, the, the brand polishing that it can provide uh, to a company. Now, as I understand you, I should not be so concerned because you're not ducking the issue, you're reframing the issue somewhat away from healthcare coverage costs to things that are much more strategic that have indirect and direct benefits to companies' bottom lines, which is what it's all yeah. about. Yeah, and uh, in fact, you know, there's research to show that for every dollar, dear CEO, you're spending on healthcare costs, you're losing two to three dollars of performance. I mean, if you restrict your studies just to the tip of the iceberg, you don't get a real opportunity to understand the full impact 
uh, that um, a healthy workforce can provide. Uh, you know, yeah. plus, plus, you know, I, I, we have to stop for a second and say uh, it's also the right thing to do. Uh, you know, if if um, if you're going to say, dear CEO, my greatest asset is my people, which many, if not all, CEOs articulate, then you need to put your money uh, behind that, and you need to understand that healthcare costs, for example. And wellness costs and safety costs are really not a cost. They're an investment. I, I know that even in that health affairs article, you, you focused on, I think it was Navistar's reduction of health care coverage costs over time. But you're saying, you know what, that's really not the greatest way to measure um, the success of your well-being initiatives and your move to culture uh, because... Uh, there are much more impactful things in, that happen. Is that right? Uh, it, it's true, but, you know, again, I mean, I also published an article, and you can have me come back to talk about this, too. The, the, health, next, the health Next methodology, which helps employers build a culture of health and well-being, scores companies out of 1,000 points and tries to get companies to a benchmark score of 700. And most of our companies start when we do our assessment with a score around 350. And our mm. research has shown that for every 50 points that they gain, there's a 1% reduction in their medical trend. So, you know, one of the byproducts of building a culture of health and well-being is to do something that, uh, that, that, that even consultants have historically said can't be done, which is to control your health care costs. And we do know that benchmark culture of health companies have had sustainably flat healthcare trends. And this is the trend that led Warren Buffett to state that the real corporate tax on America is not what the federal government has been applying to to companies, but what has happened with escalating healthcare costs. We all know that uh, when you uh, have runaway healthcare costs, prevents employers from doing other things like giving people raises or investing in research. Well, we look at things like being um, an employer of choice. This great resignation, we don't know where that's going. We don't know if it's a blip, but there's definitely a, a, an empowered uh, potential employee out there that could find out everything about you as an employer. Uh, they share tips, advice, critiques, uh, that can't be ignored, and it can cost, and it could, and it could be the source of opportunity if you have a very attractive workplace. But just generally speaking, how do we sort of do this reframe that Jim alluded to and look at this differently going forward? One of the real challenges that employers have is getting employees fully engaged so that they not only do the job that they're supposed to do, but even discretionary effort. If the employee really feels as if the employer cares about them and their family, they're going to work harder. Sometimes, I mean, some studies suggest even 10 to 20 percent harder. And they're certainly not going to leave just because they have an opportunity to make, uh, a, a, you know, a, a small amount of additional money. Um, and so, you, you know, you, you get greater engagement and retention which is really what you're talking about when you talk about being the employer of choice. Do you have any other thoughts on, you know, outside the tent, if you will, right? There, there are people on board with this, others that aren't giving it much thought or that are trying and maybe struggling, but on how they approach 
uh, whole person well-being to see it as a strategic business enabler. Yeah, I, I think one of the examples that we can uh, promote is the example of a culture of safety. So in the 1980s, the CEO of Alcoa, um, Paul O'Neill, yes. decided that he was going to try to make his company that smelted aluminum, it's a dangerous uh, work setting, and make it healthier. He was told by uh, many people that human beings make mistakes, errors happen, people get injured, and there's not much you can do about it back in the 1980s. But he studied it with a Six Sigma methodology, and I believe he reduced his injury rate at Alcoa a hundredfold. I mean, there was it was quite significant reductions, and he did it by building a culture of safety. Uh, it took a while, maybe even another decade, to get other employers on board with that. But today, you are hard pressed, even globally, to find a company in the manufacturing space that doesn't try hard to build a culture of safety. What else would you focus on in terms besides leadership and culture uh, if you were advising a CEO that is just now starting to think about this? Even in the article that we're discussing, there's a listing of the 10 pillars that we recommend all uh, enterprises engage in. Uh, the first two, because they have to be done in sequence, uh, are ones that we talked about. Leadership support and management alignment is one, mm -hmm. and having a multi-year strategic plan is two. But you know, among them, one that I'd call your attention to, I'll say two that I'll call your attention to. One is, it's really important to deliver uh, on this uh, effort with business rigor. And so if you're, so that it can't be considered just a soft, nice to have. As a yep. consequence, uh, you know, my company has uh, worked with our clients to build cockpits, dashboards, and scorecards around health, safety, and well-being in the same way that companies do that for their finances and operations. I have co-written the leading textbook in this space entitled Population Health, uh, colon, Creating Cultures of Wellness. And this textbook is now the leading textbook for medical schools and graduate schools around the country. And uh, in, you know, in that book, we talk certainly a lot about population health. And so when we work with employers, uh, we're always uh, teaching them that they have to do five things across the continuum of population health. They need to keep their well people well. They need to help people who have health risks reduce their risks. They need to make sure that when their people get sick, they have access to care. So they need to make sure that every one of their people have a medical home or a primary care doctor. They need to have programs to help people who have chronic conditions not fall prey to the complications of those diseases. And then they have to have programs that can really help those that are struggling 
with catastrophic conditions such as set center of excellence programs. Okay. So, you know, so part of, so two other important pillars beyond leadership and management alignment, beyond having a strategic plan is that it's data driven and it focuses on uh, providing uh, support for people no matter where they are in their own health journey. Ray, you've spoken about the importance of culture, uh, CEO leadership, and a variety of other things, but it appears as if one of the really necessary ingredients here is patience, that these things do not happen overnight. You can't snap your fingers and change your culture or create a, a leadership culture or peer support. This takes time. What would you advise employers about the timeline here and, and how important it is to be persistent and patient? Uh, it's an excellent question, uh, Jim, and I'm glad that you brought this up. Uh, our research shows that uh, the benchmark culture of health companies that we studied initially to develop our Six Sigma methodology all took somewhere between seven to 10 years to get to that benchmark. Now, we believe with the methodology that we've built now that we can take any company uh, from where they are to benchmark, perhaps in as little as three years, if they follow a comprehensive strategic plan that we can outline for them, uh, where they can address their gaps from benchmark. Uh, but it is a transformational process, and it does take time. But as I alluded to, from uh, an article that I published in 2018, uh, employers get some gains along the way. I mean, we know that for every 50 points that an employer uh, improves in our methodology, there's a 1% reduction in medical trend. So they're getting some payback along the way. But uh, our research also shows, as you would expect with any other business practice, that even after you get to best practice, you have to continue to uh, work at it uh, because it can tarnish over time if it's not watered, watered and fed. Along the way, I assume there are some quick wins. Uh, you, certain things are going to take longer, but putting in a, uh, a proper, well thought through, comprehensive well-being program can deliver some shorter term wins. Uh, for employers to go down that path is that is that fair to say yes i mean and i you know and i published research that uh, that proves that to be the case i mean i did think that perhaps uh, you had to get to a critical level of implementation before you would start to see an impact uh, but our research suggests that as the companies improve they see impacts along the way they get reinforced along the way uh, with, uh, among other things, greater control of their health care uh, uh, inflation. And that makes it easier for an HR director, for example, to st justify staying the course for the first year and the second year if they, if they think this through, it sounds like. The standard approach that employers take, which is uh, prior to open enrollment, they look at what they're doing and decide what they might want to do next year, does not work. So if they're going year to year and analyzing how they're doing and they don't have a multi-year strategy, 
uh, they're much less likely mm. to be successful. Yeah. And, and uh, all of the companies that we studied that were benchmark had multi-year strategies. Uh, to wrap this up, let's get back to the June 2021 study. Uh, given the results of that study, uh, which built on four or five other studies that you have co-authored, uh, what do you believe employers should take away with that study and how should it guide their business case for investing in employee wellness and well-being programs? Two things. One, uh, dear CEO, investing in the health, safety, and well-being of your workforce may actually be the best business decision that you can make. And the second thing I would say is for those of you in the investment community who are trying to decide which companies to invest in, uh, my research and others is suggesting that you should be demanding, dear investment community, increasing information so that you can solve what presently is a blind spot in your ability to determine which companies are worthy of your money. And uh, we see a future where companies need to share with you their scores in what they're doing around their culture of health, safety, and well-being. At the present time, it's actually very difficult for employers to, um, uh, for investors to be able to differentiate between companies that are doing a great job and not doing a great job. Uh, my article even expresses some of the challenges with the present level of public domain information, and uh, hopefully that will change. Well, ho let's hope your article starts a movement in that direction Yes. so that we have more than just ESG investing, but we have well-being investing. You've been listening to Returns on Well-Being Institute podcast. To learn more about our resources and programs that help employers make employee well-being a bottom-line business strategy, please visit www.returnsonwellbeing.com.